Welcome to the Demystifying Diversity podcast, where each week we explore topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Dara Lise Lyons, and I'm speaking to you today from the stolen Lenape lands known as Philadelphia. And I'm Zach James, also occupying stolen Lenape lands. And hello, I'm Azaria Keys, and I'm also occupying Lenape land. In this Q&A episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast, we're going to be building off of last week's episode, Moving Beyond Biases, A Humanistic Approach. And if you haven't already, make sure to listen to that episode. It's a comprehensive exploration of how we human beings are biased and what we can do to dismantle our false judgments about ourselves and others. Comprehensive is right. So sorry, you all. Last week's episode was definitely the longest one of the season. And I think that had a lot to do with the fact that there was just so much to be said on the subject. And it was hard to know because bias is such a comprehensive category, like what to keep in and and what to take out. And in fact, I think when the three of us originally explored bias as a topic, it was clear that we had to split the subject up into two episodes. So last week we focused on the biases in human beings and next week we'll be focusing on bias and technology, which I thought was also a really exciting avenue of exploration. I'm so glad we're going in depth about this because there are so many facets to talk about and unexamined biases in the workplace, unfortunately, have the power to negatively impact a person's entire career trajectory. Indeed. And I know I don't have to tell you all this, but there's a lot of research showing that dark-skinned Black people are less likely to be hired for positions than our lighter-skinned counterparts, even when we're as qualified or more qualified. And, And once hired, we tend to earn less. Yeah, that's a devastating statistic. And there's a really good article in the Harvard Business Review about colorism and marketing and the financial ramifications of bias. And so I think we should put a link to that in the show notes. There's so many forms of bias that play out over the course of people's careers and lives. I think the more listeners and we can learn about this subject, the better and the more equipped we'll be to do something about it. So we will put a link to marketing still has a colorism problem in the show notes. Absolutely. And we see bias in the marketing industry and many, if not all industries, Azaria, can you talk a bit about why it's so important to include this subject among our episodes this season? It's interesting because bias divides us. It points out our differences, but it also brings us together in the sense that we all have biases. We're living in a time where DEI, social justice, they're really hot topics. And oftentimes that can exclude certain demographics, make certain demographics feel as though they're the bad guys. But I think what's great about the conversation around bias is that it really positions each of us to say, how can I reflect on what I contribute to this this situation? Because it's something that we literally all share and have, regardless if it's a bias towards race, gender, ability, whatever it might be, we all have biases within us. So I think that's great because it helps us come to the table as equal participants impacting this issue. So that's why it's important because it impacts all of us. It's interesting that you would say that because on the one hand, it does, it impacts all of us. And so I think in that way, it can bring people together. But on the other hand, bias is so arbitrary. It's so subjective. One of the things that I hope people will emerge from with this episode is just the acknowledgement that just because we believe it doesn't mean that it's true and that other people can believe the exact opposite. (laughs) And so 
for me, I think just this episode is really important in getting people to question their initial impressions and assessments of other people. And ultimately, I believe that on the other side of bias is a celebration of diversity, but we have to bring these things to the surface, even just within our own awareness. And so to me, this feels like something that's very useful on a daily basis, but also only as useful as people are willing to engage with it. So I wanted to know for both of you, what were some of the more impactful moments or stories or takeaways from this episode? One of the things that resonated the most with me and that I try to stress to folks in my circle uh, whenever we're talking about the topic, and Leora really did a great job drilling this home, is that biases are natural. I think oftentimes people think if they feel a certain way about a group that it's bad, and it's not. It's fully okay to have a bias. Making decisions based off that bias and letting that bias control your thoughts and, and opinions about everything, I think that's where folks get into trouble. So making that distinction, knowing that it is okay to have biases, but learning how to not base your decisions off of those biases, I think that's a major uh, takeaway from this episode. I'd agree. Leora and I have discussions all the time about biases. And I think that it's really interesting because back to my original point, we all have them. But to your point, Zach, you can't act on them. That's where it becomes problematic. For me, I really enjoyed Jolly Good Ginger's segment. First off, love his name. (laughs) But also... It was almost like his perspective, having lived in such a household where he was taught such racist ideology, a lot of times you hear people say, oh, people aren't like, that's a thing of the past. People aren't like that anymore. People don't think like that. But to hear him be like, no, like white folks do think like this. These are the conversations they're having at their dinner table. And this is why it's problematic. That was validating in the sense that this work is still important. We do still need to be having these discussions because those are the conversations that are being had, right? And it's not just white people. It's literally any of us speaking or thinking upon the biases that we we hold towards specific groups, right? But I just, I really enjoyed hearing him keep it so real throughout his portion. And it really just brought to light that that is what bias is. It's those hidden in the shadows, discussions with ourselves, like within ourselves. And he just experienced that like at home. But then he spoke about how it played out in his relationship with the rest of the world, even his siblings. So I thought that was really powerful. And that's why it's so important to be real about the biases we have. So oftentimes we, I think it's hard for people to admit that they have them or just out of being defensive. It's easy to deny that you still hold those beliefs or deep down in you, this is the way that you think. But he brought that to light and I appreciated that. But he also talked about the real hard work as a child he was doing to pull himself out of that, which kudos to him at such a young age, recognizing that something wasn't right, because that's something a lot of adults struggle with. I was just impressed by that. I really enjoyed listening to him. What about you, Darylise? I'm so glad that you brought his story up because it really made me think about the difference between indoctrination and experience. Oftentimes, people acquire biases because of what they're taught, because of what they learn. And I think for me, the value adds of diversity is that we actually get to experience people as people, right? And to learn about, oh, this is a person who fill in the blank. This is a neuroscientist who's a woman. And maybe I was raised to think that women weren't good at math or at science or whatever it is. This is an LGBTQ person who's talking about their family 
And they're talking about their family in the same way that I'm talking about my family and I'm not a member of that community or whatever it is. I feel like for me, the exposure is part of what dismantles bias naturally. And then, of course, we have to be willing to have an authentic experience of those people across identity lines. But I loved when he spoke about how actually, in some ways, the white supremacist person all they really have to do is encounter a Black person or a person of color and realize, oh, wait, these lies that I've been telling myself are so inaccurate. But like really some of that sneaky, under the surface, subterranean, unexamined bias, that's the place where I think more of the work needs to be done. And so I'm glad that you referenced him because that, that came up a lot for me. And then To Zach's earlier point about Leora, this idea that bias isn't bad, but it's how we bring bias to consciousness and work with it. And then also that bias, when accompanied by power, leads to problems. (laughs) That stood out to me. These past few years have really illuminated how important it is to care for our health. The place where I go for all my health and wellness supplements is Vita Supreme. Vita Supreme uses all organic ingredients and has a wide range of supplement options that can help with immune support, heart health, energy, mental health, pain relief, sleep, anti-aging, digestion, diabetes, and more. Their products have helped me reduce joint pain and increase vibrancy. And if you read their online testimonials, you'll find glowing endorsements from their customers who at every age and stage of life are feeling better than ever. Vita Supreme believes that health radiates from the inside out, and I can tell you from personal experience that their supplements have made a positive difference in my life. To receive 10% off your first order, go to vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity. Your discount will be applied at checkout. There's no code required. Also, as a special offer with your first order, you can receive a free 15-minute coaching session with one of their wellness experts to find out more about what you can do to improve your health and your habits. Just send your name and preferred contact information to support at vitasupreme.com. Once again, to get 10% off your first order, go to vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity. And to receive your free coaching session, email support at vitasupreme.com and tell them the Demystifying Diversity podcast sent you. Through innovative and dynamic educational initiatives, Temple University's Fox School of Business provides students with real-world, local, and global business opportunities. At the Fox School of Business, you can choose from a wide range of undergraduate, graduate, certificate, and continuing educational programs. Whatever your academic and professional path, you'll learn practical strategies for workplace success at a university that is committed to encouraging and respecting diversity in all forms and perspectives. The Fox School of Business, which includes the Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture, has built an inclusive, welcoming environment where everyone is emboldened to reach their full potential. So if you want to be in a learning environment that will empower you to cultivate your capacity for empathy and profitability, go to fox.temple.edu ddp for more on how you can learn from world-class DEI-focused faculty and become an inclusive leader in the workplace. 
So if you want to be in a learning environment that will empower you to cultivate your capacity for empathy and profitability, go to fox.temple.edu ddp for more on how you can learn from world-class DEI-focused faculty and become an inclusive leader in the workforce. With options for students and professionals at every stage of life, including undergraduate, graduate, certificate, and continuing educational programs, the Fox School of Business has something just right for you. So make sure to check out fox.temple.edu ddp to learn more. So I'm curious for both of you, how do we bring bias into our consciousness and work on it in ways that are not harmful to other people? I would say it's the age old lesson of thinking before you speak. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's as simple as that for me. I can't put it any other way. I just think that you need to be aware of what's about to come to the surface. And if that means you need to slow down a bit before you just open your mouth and say something that could potentially harm someone, then do that. Take a moment, sit in the silence, sit in the uncomfortable space that your thoughts are creating for you and be mindful of how that might land. I think Rocky said it in her interview that she's all about impact. Our intention is one thing, but intention isn't really reality because once it leaves our body, our mouths to be received by somebody else, that really becomes what reality is. And that's the impact. And we're not always going to get it perfect, but we need to try. Think before you speak. And if you're really not sure, maybe don't say it and maybe go to some trusted sources afterward and just reflect with them and say, hey, I was having this conversation with someone one day, or I was thinking about saying this and something just didn't feel right about saying that. So I didn't What do you think that was? And process that with someone else if that helps. But you don't always need to say something if if it's going to lead to hurting others. Right. Azaria, I'm going to say it differently. You said think before you speak. I'm going to say check yourself before you wreck yourself. (laughs) Same same philosophy. Same concept. Um, And if I were to add on to that, alluding to what you finished up with is ask questions. If you don't know what you're going to say is appropriate or not, if you don't know it for fact, ask a question. I think that'll always be received better than you making a statement and it being wrong. Also, even to go further, if you do speak on your bias and happen to be wrong and someone corrects you, accept it, understand it, grow from it versus trying to fight it. Usually that's what leads to some negative encounters. One thing that occurs to me is that there seems to be a relationship between bias and belonging. And so I'm curious if you all can share a story or an experience or a reflection, whether from your own lives or from these episodes about how bias and belonging are in relationship with one another. So actually something about this came up for me just a little while ago, and I posted about it on social media. And it was in reference to as a business professional, as an entrepreneur, not letting folks know that you're Black or whatever your ethnicity is. I saw a video of a a CEO of a business whose client base was predominantly white, and he hid himself from the brand. You couldn't find him on the website. You could not figure out who owned this business until it grew to a level. And when he had a a reckoning with himself that this doesn't feel right, like I want to be proud of, of what I've created, he started to make himself public, and he did notice uh, backlash. He did notice uh, a downtick in sales. I had a similar experience when I worked in, in pro sports and would sell or or get to the next to last stage of selling a ticket package to someone over the phone. And I invite them out to a game and I'm thinking they're super excited and pumped. 
and they get to the game and they're shocked to see who I am. Now, the kid that they brought to the game is having a blast. I gave them the best time of their life. I'm thinking there's no way they're not buying this 10 game package. And somehow the attitude changed, the tone changed, and they end up not being my customer. And I think their bias towards having a black sales rep and whatever went along with that is what ended up impacting me. So it's something that I think a lot of people deal with of all different races, backgrounds, orientations, the whole nine. And it's unfortunate, but I think there's a lot of stories of folks dealing with it. And again, I'm always hoping episodes like this can can help change that. I had to think about this, but there is an experience I had that kind of my mom had, but I knew it was going on. I was not always the greatest student growing up. I'm sure I gave plenty of teachers a hard time. And my dad was incarcerated for several years of my life as a child. And one of my teachers who still to this day, I probably think he was racist and had no business teaching little black and brown students. But I remember my mom got called into like meetings all the time. And one day he says to her, not a lot of these kids, including Azaria, have fathers. And my mom, like, literally probably, like, very much put him in his place in the manner in which she would. But the relationship there between bias and belonging was when I found out about that, but I also just knew because that's how he was treating me, his bias about Black fathers being in children's lives and how that then showed up in how he treated his students It really separated, at least for me, I didn't feel like I belonged to the good family. I don't know. He made me feel like my family wasn't good because the bias that he imposed on me because he assumed that even if my father is incarcerated, that doesn't mean he's not active in my life. You have no idea what led to that, so on and so forth, and same for any of the other students. But his bias really made me feel like I did not belong in the good schools. I didn't belong in the good category because my family dynamic was different. And so it really made me feel like for a long time that stuck with me. I mean, even here today, I can't believe a teacher would say that to a parent and treat children like that, but that still happens. So yeah, bias can really jeopardize someone's sense of belonging. Before I even encounter someone else's bias towards me, I can assume, and this is me having possibly bias towards them, I can assume that they might have bias towards me and maybe almost self-sabotage a situation and feel like I won't belong. So I maybe I won't go to that event or I won't approach that person because they probably already think X, Y, and Z about me. And part of that is stereotype threat. So yeah, it definitely is related. I have plenty of stories, but that one stuck with me and still stings a little bit. <laughs> hey listeners, Zach here. Darylise and I are so grateful you've tuned in to season three of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. You probably know by now that we've partnered with Temple University's Fox School of Business to bring you this special season dedicated to DEI in the workplace. With that in mind, we ask that you send us your work-related DEI questions by calling 844-888-8148. Just leave a message with your question or send us a note through our website, www.demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. As always, we'll be joined by some amazing guest experts and thought leaders who can also weigh in on whatever questions you have. Again, the number is 844-888-8148 or message us through our website, demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. Who knows, your voice or your question may just make it into one of our Q&A episodes. Happy listening. Darylise, was there anything that didn't make it into this episode that you would have wanted to include? 
with this one, and Zach, I know you had shared before we started recording that it was like in some ways you hoped that it wasn't too repetitive because we covered some things that we've covered before. I don't think it's possible to ever have enough stories of how these things impacted people's lives. But what I never know is whether or not those listening are receiving those stories and being changed by them. I wish that I could have the listener's authentic experience of coming to this new and hearing those stories. And I think for me, I don't know what stories will be the most impactful. So my hope is just that the individual stories and experiences will expand people's minds and maybe help dismantle some of their bias. But I think not knowing what stories are going to do that, I just want to include as many stories as possible that are going to make the biggest impact as possible. Azaria, how about you? Was there anything that you would have wanted to see different or include that wasn't included? No, is my answer. Only because, and I maybe the reason it feels so repetitive is because really the topics that we're covering throughout the season, bias is at the foundation. Bias towards people with disability and neurodivergency, bias towards parents in the workplace, remote work biases. It's at the foundation of all of these other issues. And so in a way, we've already touched on similar stories. No story is the exact same, but we've touched on similar stories. And maybe that's why it feels like we've heard this before. But that points to the fact that this is a necessary conversation because it is a part of all of these other issues, right? It's just the foundational piece that sets the the framework for how we handle these other issues. And so that's why it's important. So to your point, Darylise, I think you never want to discredit the fact that all of these stories that people shared are real. And that is why we need to continue to share them. So I don't think there was anything that I necessarily felt didn't make it in the episode, but it's just continuing to have these conversations that feels the most important. Well, speaking of conversations, I think now would be a great time to move into our expert interview section of the Q&A episode. In this section, I had the opportunity to speak with James Barnes, the trans coach, who is a public speaker and transition coach who happens to be transgender. When James started his transition just shy of 10 years ago, he knew nothing about the process or how to advocate for himself. And he says that now as a speaker and a coach, his goal is to help people create empathy and build identity development skills so that they can be spared the pain and alienation that he experienced in his journey to living more authentically. So we'll play the clip of my interview with James, and then the three of us will come back and discuss it. Can we demystify diversity? Making work safe for you and me Shoulder to shoulder we embark Invite the light to send the dark Let's embrace one another Single colleagues, working mothers People of all points of view Can we see each other? The work I do is ever-evolving. It started out with trying to educate companies with trans education and has really evolved. I even think since the last time we spoke, I've been getting to do more keynote-type speeches, which is really my passion, getting to just share my story as a person who happens to be trans. And that is the essence of why I do it, is I just want people to understand that all people 
are so much more than that one little box we put them into and that we're complex and we're deep and we're sometimes problematic <laughs> and sometimes really trying to go for solutions. But at our core, people are just wanting to do and be the best that they can. And they're wanting to be kind. And sometimes they do that in ways that are not as accomplished as they want. I've had allies try to say the right thing and they're offensive, but they're trying. And I have tried to do the right thing and still fumbled. So my goal is really to just teach and build as much empathy and understanding so that we get back to seeing the people, the people behind the token label, the people behind the ERG or the DEI class that we're taking, which are all great in their own ways, but often they almost put us even more in the labels. And so I'm just trying to get back to who are we as individuals? Who are we at our core? I got into the DEI world through COVID and this just pushed me. People wanted to know more. I wanted to talk. And so it just kind of happened. And what really actually unpacked and happened is I felt so uncomfortable being a white straight man in the DEI world. Yes, I have every right to talk about being trans, but honestly, I want to make space for a trans woman who's black to take up my space. And I just want to be able to go to conferences or conventions and tell my story and talk about identity development. And I noticed the more I was doing DEI training, the more uncomfortable I felt and not judged. Nobody was ever like, you don't deserve to be here. But I just felt I am taking up one box that somebody could really show so much depth and so much story. And it started to really give me my own identity crisis of why am I doing this? Is it that I just did this because I got put in this role? Or am I really passionate about DEI? And I realized like I'm passionate about the humanity behind DEI. And I want to do that through storytelling. So I've actually been doing some shifting. I'm still doing the DEI training. I just got to teach and train a couple tech companies before the layoffs happened. But I'm really hoping to really pivot more into just being able to focus on identity development and transition development for anyone who's going through a big transition and tell my story as a person. Because I think DEI is amazing and important but so much more complex than just a basic workshop or training and definitely more complex than what my own box has to offer. Does that make sense? 100% makes sense. And I love what you shared and I'm smiling because one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about today, the primary thing is talking about bias and how we work to dismantle bias. And I think what you shared about the vastness and the depth of people, in my experience, is the antidote to bias, right? It's the way through. 100%. Yeah. And so I'm just wondering for people listening, what you might suggest if people are seeing the person in front of them as one dimensional or as a single label, how do people start to increase their awareness of the depth and the vastness of another human being? Questions, conversation, critical thinking. We've really lost the art of critical thinking because of social media. Somebody is no longer multifaceted. I literally, before I jumped on him, was journaling about where I want my career to go. 
and how I've really lost sight of my career because whether it's TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, what they want from you is to be one brand and they will put people towards you on that algorithm for one brand topic. And the same with DEI. Obviously, I'm trans. And from a DEI perspective, that is my token thing. People are not going to be coming to me to talk about being white, straight, or male presenting. They're going to need to talk about that. And that's valid. That's what they're wanting to learn about. But as a human, what that makes me feel is that those other parts of me have less value. That being a dad or a husband, caring about people in the way that I do has less value than being trans. And on Instagram or any of the other social media platforms, my likes go down when I talk about my depth as a person. People are there to learn about the trans topic. And so that makes me feel like the other parts of me are less valuable. But for me, I don't want to talk about being trans. I want it to be an organic part of me talking about my journey that happens to be the journey of someone who is trans. So I think that the more we can look at people and see them for all of their different aspects, when you're talking to somebody and you meet them maybe at a barbecue or at your job, try to train yourself to have two or three questions that are one, not about their race, not about their gender, not about their religion or one of the main things they normally talk about, but are that are deeper than just how was your weekend? Did you do something this weekend that made you feel really happy? Do you have a hobby? I've never asked you, do you have a hobby that you like to do? When their face lights up talking about their hobby, that's who they are. That's their thing. And maybe part of them is that they're proud of being black and that's beautiful. But I'm going to bet you they also really love collecting baseball cards or watching rom-coms or something. There's depth to every person. And the more that we can give them the allowance to be that because I have met so many different people who are talking about somebody who's black, who might like baseball cards or something. They've said to me, oh, I've told people about that and they don't care. They want to hear about, and then they'll talk about the cliche things that people want to hear about. They've tested the waters and people said, that's not what I have space for. So then make space for those parts that other people don't want to hear about. Let them be complex in front of you. Let them be complex in front of you. I really love that you said that and the examples that you gave. And one of the things that I'm aware of is that in workplace settings, it can be a little bit tricky, right? Because we want to get to know the depth of other people. And also there's certain lines that it's really not appropriate to cross, right? In terms of investigation. So I do, I like the examples that you gave of tell me about your hobbies or did anything light you up that you did over the weekend? And and I'm just curious, do you have any other suggestions for how to explore the depths of our coworkers, our colleagues, our employees, our employers without crossing into those uncomfortable and inappropriate places? I think there's always going to be the certain topics that we have to be very mindful about. Religion is one of them, money. But there's certain things that you can let somebody speak to that is inherently appropriate. Kindness, passion, hobbies is a really good one. But when I look back to my team, when I used to work in like a nine to five job, and I knew a lot about all of them, we spent all of our time together 40 plus hours a week you pick up on things. Maybe it's somebody, I had a, I'm a, a family member whose mom was trying to get her visa. And just that basic follow-up of, hey, how's your mom's visa working out? 
those little things that just show, hey, I see you and I remember you have a family outside of this place. Those things don't have to be long in-depth conversations or invasive personal questions. If one time maybe there was a hiccup she didn't want to talk about, she'd say like, it's stressful. I don't want to talk about it. Totally. If you ever need a vent, let me know. Move on to the next thing. I think what can be awkward is when you don't know how to conversate and you're starting out, maybe this is new for somebody who's an introvert normally, or maybe they burned a bridge and they're trying to find the appropriate ways to to get to know people. Really understanding that people are more complex than the uncomfortable topics, religion, money, race, gender, sexuality, all of the things that we've made, those are important things. But people are way more than just those things. So it can feel like, how do I get to know somebody if I'm not allowed to talk about A, B, C, or D? But you can bring up fun movies. I've had great, deep conversations about a movie I just saw that had nothing to do with any of those things. You can say, oh my gosh, I saw this movie and it made me really think about how much I'm struggling right now. I'm just tired or I'm worn out. Or, and all of a sudden you're being vulnerable without talking about religion or money or anything like that. You're just being real. Or you can say like, I'm ah, just so tired. I was up late last night. My daughters kept me up all night. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Is there anything I can help with that? Or do you in court have dinner planned or do you want me to drop off a casserole? Something like that where we've lost that sense of a village. It takes a village to survive in our lives. Your coworkers can do that without overstepping. Maybe you don't feel comfortable offering a casserole. That's fine. You can say, let me know if you need anything. I'm here to help. I've been there. I remember how exhausting it was with my kids. Or maybe you don't have kids, but you can say, oh yeah, I totally get that. Just letting somebody vent about something. Let somebody feel what they're really feeling. That alone is a gift. It doesn't have to be that you're asking these personal questions or these invasive questions or talking about taboo topics. Sometimes somebody just needs to be able to feel what they're feeling in front of you and have that be seen. That's it. I love that you're sharing about that. And I also want to pivot back to what you said earlier about journaling before getting on this this call. And one thing I really had wanted to explore with you was last time we talked, we talked a little bit about internalized phobias or interjected feelings of inferiority that people might feel about themselves or a feeling of estrangement within oneself. And so something I wanted to touch on is what do people do when some of the biases or the beliefs that they hold are beliefs about their own worth or lovability that are a reflection of inaccurate cultural conceptions and societal experiences, right? So like, how have you worked with that? How do you support others in working with that to dismantle some of the barriers of self-embrace and belonging? One of the best tools that has worked for me with other people and myself is taking away the judgment. I think as a white person, there is that whole, I want to be anti-racist, but I also don't want to admit that there's racism taught to me and ingrained, right? You want your cake and to eat it too. But what I had to do is I had to own my shit. I had to say I was raised in a society that is racist. It is inevitable that my brain will have racist thoughts or 
judgmental things or homophobic thoughts. I was raised in a very religious town. It is inevitable. What is not inevitable is that I have to keep that way. I can shift it, but I will not be able to shift it. And if I do two things, if I live in denial or if I only judge myself for the environment and the way that I keep living. Once I alleviate the judgment and once I acknowledge the real reality that that was the environment I was raised in, I was raised in a religious household who thankfully was not extremely homophobic or transphobic. They just were doing their best putting me in the religion <laughs> that they knew, but they were pretty liberal. And I was raised in a country, in a world that is racist, that is ableist, that is all of it. It is that way. Then I can take a step back and say two things can be true at the same time. That is the environment I was raised in, but that does not mean that it has to be a reflection off of me. And I can do the anti-racist work while looking at myself and saying, ooh, that was not an okay thought. I don't want to have that thought again. How do I retrain my brain not to do that? What books do I need to read? What people do I need to follow? What people do I need to learn from? How do I make sure that I'm learning as much as I can to be as anti-racist as possible? And then what strategies can I learn to implement that to the people I love? And if I'm implementing it to the people I love to help them be anti-racist, then it helps me be even more kind and forgiving and loving. Because I think what happens is, especially as a white person, I've seen other people get defensive. As a trans person, I've seen people get defensive about transphobic things. And I've told people, growth does not come from shame. So if you are going to make other people feel shame, or if you yourself are going to feel shame, it's not going to grow. A beautiful flower does not grow in the dark. And so you have to bring it to light. You have to let it breathe. You have to give it nutrients and kindness and love. Then from there, you can grow something really awesome, something really stunning. And the same goes for your own type of bias feelings that you're feeling or the shame or your fear, like saying out loud, oh my gosh, I struggle with transphobic thoughts or I struggle with racist thoughts or, or whatever it might be. Own it. And if only owning it is in the privacy of your own home when you're journaling it, write it all out. Write out what you're struggling with. Write out with every time I see somebody who looks like me, who's trans, I don't want to admit I'm trans because I don't want to be associated with them. Okay, write that out. Own it. And then look at it and say, if my best friend was saying this, and I love my best friend, I want my best friend to be kind. I want my best friend to be empathetic. Would I shout at them? Would I make them feel dirty or would I look at them and say, I get it. Now, how do we unpack this together and grow? That is how you get it. I love that so much. I know last time we talked a lot about youth and future generations. And I think a lot of people come at education from a perspective of, okay, I'm going to raise anti-racist kids, or I'm going to raise kids who never have a trans phobic thought in their life or who never struggle with xenophobia or wh whatever it is, ableism, this idea that we're going to download the correct information. But what you just talked about was giving someone a process-oriented tool that they can use whenever different biases, different beliefs, different judgments come up 
because they will come up. So can you talk about like, I know you've, you're raising two young ones and like, how do you plan to work with younger people to support them in having not so much the right beliefs, but the tools to dismantle those beliefs when they do come up? Two things, crucial conversations and critical thinking. That is the mantra for my parenting. I get it wrong all the time. Last night, I was trying to get my daughter to go to sleep. She was not going to sleep. I snapped at her, and I just was not the dad I wanted to be. And I paused. I took three deep breaths, and I looked at her, and I said, I am so sorry. I did not show up how I should have. She came over. She gave me a hug. She said, I'm sorry. I was fighting. And she's a six-year-old. She's incredible. She gives me a hug. We both apologize. I get her into bed. I read my story. She reads hers, and we just, like, wind down she falls asleep. Parenting is not perfection. Living is not perfection. So when you go into it thinking, I'm going to raise (laughs) anti-racist, the most inclusive kids, when you go into it thinking, I'm going to have, and then it's this, you will inevitably realize that you did not do that. I am doing my very best to educate my kids about gender and how people are complex And my kids will still look at me and say, well, boys can't wear that. Only girls can. And I just think, what the heck? How did that come from me? Now, I can do two things. I can shame my kids and say, no, we don't say that. We don't think that. Or I can say, interesting. Where'd you learn that from? Oh, it's just that way. Okay. What if, and then I give them an example for their brain to build a bridge. Because that's what this is about, is whether it's an adult who's 60, who I'm trying to help explain to them why their grandkid is transitioning, or it's my kid who's six. All we are doing is connecting wires in their brain that weren't there before. And you only can do that when the brain feels safe enough to learn. So then you ask the questions that help them adapt, that help them go from one thought that they thought was correct, because whether it is a 60-year-old or a six-year-old, their brain thinks that they're correct. So how do you help the brain feel like, oh, that is a tangible jump that I can make. And then that makes sense why my dad is saying that boys or girls or people who aren't boys or girls might wear this. That makes sense. Okay, that's the new truth. I'm going to hang on to that. And I, I hang on to that. And then I go and I ask crucial questions because I don't want my kids to only take what I say for face value. I want them to look at it and then ask some questions to follow up to make sure that I'm not talking some bullshit stuff, just like I want them to call their teachers out. I want them to call their bosses out. And I want them to call their significant others out, just like I want their significant others to call them out and their teachers and their bosses, because that's where growth comes from, is where we all look at each other and say, we're here to learn. We're here to get down to the facts, the data, the truth. And what does the truth say versus this is what opinions say this is what emotions say and then all of a sudden it gets all blended and now we're dealing with a very messy complex situation which is what in our society we're dealing with right now but when you can step back and the person feels safe enough to ask some questions to realign their thoughts then they can feel empowered and move forward so that's how that's how courtney and i are trying to raise our daughters is to be very intellectual with how they think how they observe the world to look at it with empathy and kindness and crucial conversations and critical thinking. I love that so much. And I feel like it 
translates to so many different spaces, whether it be parenting or I know this season we're focusing on in the workplace. And I just think about how the workplace environments that I've worked in and gone into where I feel like I can bring up issues and talk about things and problem solve and voice my insecurities or the areas of quote unquote deficiency or whatever it is, like how much more I blossom and how much more I've seen my coworkers blossom. And so I'm just curious, you know, I know you go into a lot of corporations, whether it's as a keynote speaker or whether you're running a corporate training and how do you meet people where they are while also knowing that you're there to help them improve? Humility goes a long way. So as a leader, there are leaders who lead and leaders who follow. And I have only seen really good growth come from leaders who actually follow, who follow the energy, who follow the vibe that go, okay, this room is a little bit more tense, shall we say, or this room is a little bit more soft and I don't need to come in guns a blazing. I'm just like, they're already there. They just might have a little bit of uncomfortable conversations that they want to have, or this room might be full of people who do not respect me. How do I handle that? But a lot of it is following the vibe of the people. The other thing, though, is without a doubt, I always show up as myself. So when I am having a hard day, I own it. When I say, I'm here, I'm really excited. I do want to be honest with you. I am dealing with grief and I am really emotional. So there might be times when I just get a little teary eyed through it during different parts. I'm going to be really honest about that. When people see that you're showing up as a human, as well as a professional, while they might not see that as professional in our little checkboxes, the really important part, their brain, the human part, looks at it and goes, oh, I know them. I'm like them. I was sad yesterday when I fell in the blank, when I found out my mom had cancer, when I found out that my brother got laid off. Last night when I was watching that show and I cried, James felt like me. And their brain, even if they don't have that thought process out in the observant way that they can, even just the subconscious, their brain goes, oh, we're alike. He's trans, I'm cis, but we're more alike than we're different. And so going into spaces, the more I can show them in a not outward, hey, I'm just like you. You don't want to have to say it out loud like that. You just want to show this is who I am. And this is why other people like me need to be treated with respect in your workplace. This is why somebody like me, who maybe you're also white, wants to talk about how trans women who are black are treated disproportionately worse than me. And they can go, okay, so one of my fellow white individuals is talking about something. He's like me. We're a lot alike. He says this is important. Huh. Maybe I need to think that this is important too. And all of a sudden their brain makes this path because I showed them that we are together in this. And then they start to trust my advice a little bit more. And I'm able to be that bridge for people who might not fit in the same box as me, but I do want to put a light on their story. And so I try my best to just show my humanity as best as possible. I'm so glad, James, that you mentioned shining a light on those 
who might not be in the space, right? And amplifying their voices and their stories. Because in this particular episode that this Q&A is associated with, we spoke a lot about people who go uncounted, right? Whether that's an undocumented worker, someone who perhaps is non-binary in a gender binary environment where they're being silenced. So I think there are people in spaces that are not individuals with hidden or invisible disabilities, right? So there are people who are in the space who aren't being counted for their stories, their struggles, their multidimensionality. And then there are people who don't even make it into certain spaces. And I'm just curious, like, how do we serve the needs of those who are in a space, but perhaps not seen in the fullness of their humanity there, or people who are deliberately excluded or not being counted? I think that type of work first has to start outside of work by leader, by management. I personally think anybody. So I will say in my in my talks, in my firesides, in my workshops, your homework is to go back to your social media and start following at least five people who have different interests, different struggles. Their skin might be a different shade than yours. They may be in a wheelchair, whatever it might be. And don't follow them only because of that, but start paying attention to who you follow because the input you're getting in from social media, especially when everybody you're following looks like you, it's a mirror. You're just on a mirror. You're just scrolling But if you can start to really get people who are different from you, and I don't only mean, oh, well, you only follow white people because it's a mirror. No, I mean, like, literally, you're following people who like the same hobbies as you, all those complex things that we have as people, you can have a group that you only follow of people who are complex like you. So what you have to do is get out of that complex bubble and start following people who not only look different than you, but have different hobbies than you who have different interests than you, that have even different political beliefs than you, and start following people and hear them and see them and make space for them. The reason that's my first homework assignment is because one, that will trickle into your everyday life when you start thinking about policies at work, when you start doing things. I don't know if I talked about this with you, but one of my now friends, but the time when I just started following them, Carson, He's in a wheelchair and he talked about how I believe it's 28 wheelchairs a day are destroyed by airlines. Yes. Again, I got that only because I was following somebody who made that important to me. Okay. Those type of things only happen when you get out of your bubble and you follow people who are unique in their own way. So first and foremost, do that. The second thing is really be transparent about who you're bringing into your workplace. So if every person that you're bringing in is an outward speaker, trainer, advisor is white or able-bodied or straight, that right there are going to be some of your red flags. You are bringing, you are paying to bring them in to give you counsel and they look exactly like everyone else. They're not going to give you the ability to bring in one new people because it's going to be a perpetuating cycle. But two, you're not going to see any of the the holes. But if you bring in somebody who is going to be different than those three main cliche categories, 
then they're going to open up the world to all different things. It's the same thing why when people hire me and I say, I'm so grateful you hired me. I have two things I just would like for you to take into consideration. One, could you please not hire me during the month of pride? And can you make sure that you hire a queer person after me who is not in the same demographic as me? So hire somebody who is either going to be a person of color or who is disabled or who is gay or whatever it might be. Because I'm a great entry and I, I will own that. There is privilege into who I am. I am a great, let's open the door and talk. I'm straight, I'm white, I'm all of these cliche privileges. And I want to own that. And by the middle of the workshop, I normally bring that up. So everyone in the room, they start to shift their seats a little because James is owning the fact that he's privileged and stuff. But then what I do is I say, I now started the seed. Let's make sure we're creating safe environments for you to bring in other people. Because the policies you're making based off of only me or just off your one trans employee, you are going to miss a whole world of policies and procedures and exclude people unintentionally. And I think that's what's important is to make this not a blame game. I'm not saying you're doing a bad job as a company. What I'm saying is it's inevitable. It's the same thing as me looking at my, my life and saying, it would be inevitable for me to have some racist thoughts or homophobic or transphobic or sexist thoughts. It is inevitable because of the world I live in, but that is not acceptable. So how do I shift it? There's no blame, but there is accountability. Same goes for companies. It's inevitable that you will be building a company and some policies will have gray areas, but it is not acceptable to continue doing that. So bring people in, bring in professionals. And the third reason that's important is because people who do this, who are of all demographics, whether it's me or somebody who is a person of color, we can't keep our businesses going if people don't hire us. But that is extremely true for somebody who is not privileged like me, whose face matches maybe the CEO. And they're like, sure, let's bring in James. You have to make sure that you are supporting these people who are really going to make your company thrive in the long run. Hiring somebody who is complex in so many beautiful ways and bringing them in and saying, okay, you have an outlook that we don't have. Let's say you're black and you're queer and we want to make sure our company is a safe and inclusive place. Can you help us do this? Not only are you making sure that they can continue to do this work by paying them adequately, not paying the bare minimum, but paying them for their actual time and effort and the, the sacrifices they've had to make in their life to learn the lessons that they've had to learn to then give you the counsel. But you're also getting an immensely large return on what you're getting from them in counsel-wise because not only are you now avoiding possible lawsuit, but you're also now making your employees feel safe enough to thrive and be themselves and show up and really be invested in their job. So the return on investment is just huge. It's just astronomical. And so when you can do all of this from a, we don't need to shame ourselves, but we do need to expect greatness and learning and empathy and understanding, then a company, it's inevitable that the company will thrive because you're creating an environment of growth and encouragement versus let's just act like it's not happening. And then everything just goes right back to talking about shame and something that can't grow in shame. And so I think the, the key of it really has to be making sure that you're bringing in people, a wide variety of people, 
and investing in them and then turning around and showing how can we invest in our our employees because some sure like you said race some people who are queer are out they might be obvious but there are so many people who they are not going to be out and open or aren't able to be out and open so when you are inevitably bringing in this diverse group of training or you are going out and seeking out diverse training online and classes and webinars you're following diverse people, then you are starting to think in your brain, oh my gosh, maybe one of my employees is disabled in a way that I've never thought about. Are all our policies inclusive to that? And then all of a sudden you start to fill in those holes because you're bringing in people who are showing you and they're shedding a light on those areas you would have missed. And then those people feel seen without ever having to speak up. That is beautiful. Thank you so much, James. And I really, I I think our listeners got so much out of that. I know that I did, especially the multi-pronged approach and the methodology to it, because I think that having a single soundbite doesn't do justice to the complexity of the issue and the need for a variety of voices. And speaking of the need to pull in a variety of different perspectives and questions and voices, I'd love to transition to our listener call-in questions. And so we'll just play one and then I'll have you answer it and we'll play another, et cetera. For sure. Hi, I just wanted to ask, how can we keep DEI work from being a check-in-the-box exercise? How can employers that pay for training ensure that cultures actually do change? Thanks a bunch. First and foremost, it is really important that the speaker and DEI trainer provides tools, actionable steps that a company can take and not come in lecturing. And I think that what can be really difficult is for a lot of DEI, it's a very passionate topic. And so lecturing is somewhat of an inevitable thing, but it goes back to that shame. So we have to make sure as the DEI trainers and people who are doing the training within the company to make sure that you're creating an environment where the brain from a scientific level, the brain feels open to actually learn. So that is the job of the DEI person, but it's also the job of the peers of the people at work. If you are passionate about this, Talk about it in a way that lets other people get excited about it too. And then talk about it after the training. I thought it was really interesting that James said, fill in the blank. And what did did you get from that? That's how you start to create an actual shift afterwards is people talking about it and having these actionable steps that they can do right away. It's like what you said of the multi-pronged solution versus a soundbite. A soundbite is fun. A soundbite is great. But in the long run, our culture, our society will not heal from sound bites. We have to have multi-pronged actionable steps that people can do day in and day out to shift. I mean, we are talking about just a huge culture shift that we are going to have to continue to do to heal what the last few years has shown us is so, so, so broken. And that's not going to come from shame and it's not going to come from peer pressure. So when you are holding people accountable, when you have gone to a DEI training and you're like that hit home, I want to do better. And then your peers at work are doing something that's against what maybe I taught. I don't want you to shame them. I want you to go to them and say, I get why you said that. 
I get that why you messed on on pronouns again. I know that in your head, that's how this person looks. I do. I get it. But at the end of the day, we'll say Rebecca, Rebecca's mental health at work is way more important than how you think that her pronouns should be him. Rebecca is just as much a part of our team. We love Rebecca. And it would really be valuable for you to see Rebecca as a person, not just from a an HR perspective, because let's be real, there might be consequences if you can't keep calling Rebecca, Rebecca, but from a human standpoint, I mean, you love Rebecca. Don't you want Rebecca to be a part of the team? Can you imagine how that conversation would be versus somebody going, let's be real. You say him one more time for Rebecca, you're going to get fired. Sure. That person might say her moving forward so they don't lose their job, but they're never going to see Rebecca as a person. And so if you can start to lead with, yes, we are full of consequences. This is the world. You don't get to just do whatever you want. But if you can lead with counsel, then DEI work becomes one of bridge building. It becomes one of empathy building versus shame. You have to do what the DEI policy is, or you're going to get fired because a culture shift does not come from shame. A culture shift comes from this entire movement of people buying into it and believing it. And you do not get people buying into it or believing in it because of just bullying. That is not how change happens. Change happens because of hope, because they see something and they go, I believe in that. And I want to buy more into that. And I, I will risk being uncomfortable to make sure that happens. And if you want your peers who are maybe acting a little bit transphobic or racist or whatever that they're doing, you have to help them see the person on the other side because there was somebody in their life that told them that person was not person worthy of respect. And now it is your job. It shouldn't be, but it is your job if you're saying, I want to help shift the culture to help them shift that broken, devastating lesson that they were taught that somebody is less than. And you help them bridge that and say, that's a real person. Rebecca is a real person. She has two kids. Imagine if those two kids came here and they heard you talking about her that way. Wouldn't that be devastating? All of us, and maybe, yes, we all know the two or three coworkers who will still look at you and be a jerk. But there are the people who look at you mortified and think, I never saw Rebecca that way. And then they are changed. That is how culture shifts happen. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for that answer. Thank you to the caller for the question. I really, really appreciate the depth of the response. And yeah, DEI can be a check the box exercise. But as you were saying, James, if we implement the skills learned, it can create really meaningful shifts over time, right? None of these things are instant solutions to long-term problems. I do want to follow up another thing is it is just as much the employee's job, if they are passionate about it, to hold the company accountable. We all saw the companies who put up the black box, the silent day, or said that they would donate because of George Floyd, and then they never have followed up. You as an employee have every right to say, where's the money? Where's the work? What's happening? You have every right to say, you told us our culture was going to shift. We're doing the work. You're not. You have every right. So it is just as much an important DEI is not there to check off the box, but it is also 
the employee's ability to say, I believe in this. This is important. I want you to bring in James, or I want you to donate that money you said you were going to donate or whatever it is. You are just as much a part of that company as anyone else. And you have every right to say, I want to be proud of the company I work for. You bought into this. You brought in the trainer or you said you were going to donate the money. Pay up. <laughs> do what you said you were going to do. So I think it's it's important to also hold the companies accountable because they'll do a lot of lip service. But if the employees say, hey, you said you were going to do this, where's the policy change? Or hey, where's the, the training that you said we were going to get once a month outside of that person's token month? You're allowed to say that. Oh, I love that. Yeah, you are. And in fact, there's a lot of protections for employees and it definitely is a the type of market currently where employees, I think, have a lot of agency and a lot of choice. Now, again, privilege comes into play. Not everyone 100%. has choices. There's a ton of reasons that people don't feel comfortable confronting their employer. However, just know that in a lot of places, the law and the policies mm -hmm. are on the side of the employee, especially if they're holding yeah. an employer accountable for something that is, let's say, in the employee handbook or a public statement Absolutely. that was made. That is not, yeah, that is not happening behind closed yeah. doors. So yeah. I love and that's where process. ERGs are really helpful too. If you don't, as a person, want to go to the ERG and say, I might be a white employee, but I noticed that the company never donated to the George Floyd Foundation that they said they were going to. And I know that you, as the ERG for people of color, may want me to be a part of a signature or something. Bridge together. Go to the Pride ERG and say, hey, I have somebody that I would love to come in. His name's James. I really don't want it to be a Pride cliche event. It's really important for me that we learn all year round. Is it possible that we, the parent ERG, could host James mixed with your budget? Is that possible? I have seen ERGs bring me in from all different groups and they work together and it's beautiful because what it shows is we're a unit, we're a team, and we're going to use the budget how we see fit and we're going to do this and we're going to shift the company and the culture. So there are many ways that you can do something without it having to single-handedly put you out in the open and make you feel like you're not safe. But also it's important to look at the ERGs you have. And this is obviously for bigger companies, but bigger companies are the ones who said they would donate. So which is where my brain went. Thank you so, so much. I really appreciate you adding that in because I think it adds another layer of dimensionality and agency. Hey listeners, Zach James here, partner and marketing manager of the Demystifying Diversity Podcast. And I wanted to share with you some of the great things we're doing in the DEI space. Since the beginning of 2020, myself, Darylise, and our DEI team have facilitated numerous corporate trainings, engaging workshops, one-on-one -on -one coaching sessions, and so much more, both virtual and in person. To find out how you can work with us, whether you are an individual or representing an organization, school, corporation, or any other type of group seeking diversity, equity, and inclusion education, Head over to DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com backslash DEI services to send us a message or to fill out our DEI survey. Darylise is a DEI subject matter expert, having interviewed over 300 people, becoming a TEDx speaker, as well as the author of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Together, we can help you up-level your DEI skills to improve your productivity, profitability, and interpersonal relationships, 
So connect with us at DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com backslash DEI services and get yourself a copy of Darylise's book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. And don't forget the workbook too. Happy learning. Let's move to the next question. I wanted to know that if I witness treatment at work that's problematic towards an LGBTQ plus colleague, how can I be an ally without seeming condescending? There's a few ways that you can advocate for an employee, a peer. One of the best things, though, is to first ask the person if they even want to be advocated for, because it may put a target on their back. It may be something they don't care about. There are certain instances where maybe you know right away, let's say you have a Black coworker and she wore her hair curly and somebody reaches over to touch it and you can quickly say, don't touch her hair. <laughs> you can say, that's weird. Don't touch somebody's hair. I've done that before it even crossed my mind because I just thought like body autonomy, what? There's certain moments where you just as a human can say it without being able to stop and go, oh, do you want me to? You know, there's certain moments, but other times, let's say in that moment, I didn't say anything and I could walk over. We'll say Rebecca again. And I go, hey, Rebecca, I saw that Jennifer touched your hair and your face flinched a little. Do you want me to talk to her and just tell her that's not okay? Or would that be stepping on your toes? And Rebecca can say, oh, it's fine. Jennifer does it every once in a while. And I just let it go. That is her prerogative. That's her boundary. She might also say, could you, because I am so emotionally drained right now and I don't have it. So great. There's that certain time. And so it's okay to look at a, a peer or an employee and say, I, I was just on a Zoom call, a coaching call with some people recently. And there was a person whose pronouns in their name were they, them right there for everybody to see. And the host of the Zoom call kept saying she, her. I DM'd them and I said, hey, I know they keep calling you the wrong pronoun. Do you want me to call them out? I do not mind. Within three seconds, they unmuted themselves and they were like, hey, I just want to let you know I actually go by they, them. And the person was like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. And then they private messaged me and said, thank you. Your message gave me the confidence to call them out. Perfect. That's all they needed was to know that I'm in a place where there's at least one other person who will back me up. So you don't always have to be the one calling somebody out. Sometimes the person just needs to know, okay, I can stand up to Jennifer and another white person will defend me or another ally or another man will have my back. That's sometimes enough. So going to the person is a great way to start the conversation first, because also you might be dragging them into something they don't want to be dragged into. So it's good to first find out before you advocate for someone. There's also that savior complex. You think you're doing the right thing and really you're dying on a sword and making their life 10 times harder. But because you're the privileged person, you get to walk away. Cool. Just threw a match on the fire. Bye now. That's not going to be helpful. So it's really important to take a step back and say, is this something that I need to actually call out? Is it my place to call out? And if it is my place, am I going to be able to do it in a way that I have the tools and the strategy to make this a productive conversation versus worse? That is always the first step is to go to that person. We do some bystander training work and we've done trainings and things and have mentioned in other episodes that the more that we can empower, because 
bias discrimination is dehumanizing, right? And it's also dehumanizing. It can be dehumanizing to just like swoop in and be like, this person, this poor Rebecca, who's been armed in so many ways is being stripped of agency. And so I'm going to counter that by stripping this person of agency. And really, I think the most human thing that we can do is go to that person and say, I want to do what is in your best interest. The situation was created by someone overriding your autonomy, your agency, your personhood. And so it's not going to be dismantled by doing that same thing from another perspective. So I love, yeah, I love what you shared. And thank you so much to the caller for that question. I think it's also, and this is a skill that has, I think has to be learned, but it's observing eyes. There are times where I have seen somebody who is a person of color and somebody says something to them and I can see in their eyes, they don't care or they do care. And in the moments where they do care, and I don't want them to think that every other white person thought that was okay, that I'll look at them and I'll say like, that was not an okay joke. Are you okay? I don't look at the person and say, Hey, and I call them out. I look at them and I'll say, I see you. Are you okay? And it doesn't start this whole dialogue. I'm not now creating a fight for them, but I'm just letting them know. And then there's other moments where the person in their eyes, I can see that they're about to give my coworker a beating, a verbal one, a lecture. And I can just step back because they have the autonomy. They've already trained themselves. They know what to say. And then I'll come to them later and say, I just want you to know that I, I wanted to let you, you were already talking. I did not want to interrupt you and be another person who was now talking down to you. But if you ever need me to step up in those conversations, I absolutely will. But there are times where I will say in a subtle sentence form, are you good? Because that was not okay. And it lets that person know. Or, Or one of the ones that I give to people when it's trans topic is correct the pronoun, maybe not to the person. Let's talk about Rebecca again. Let's say there's somebody, John, who keeps saying him. And instead of looking at John and being like, why is this so hard for you? And all of a sudden stripping Rebecca of her time. I'll just look over Rebecca and be like, Hey, Rebecca, so-and-so was talking and I let them know that she was busy. Is that okay? Like that I, and I'll just make up something to use the right pronoun in the right name, right in front of John so that Rebecca knows I see her and John knows while I'm making eye contact with him that I see Rebecca. And all of that was done silently. Not really because I'm saying words, but you, you know what I mean. And so there's, there can be strategy with anti-racist work, with, with anti-transphobic. There can be strategies. It does not have to be this blatant, well, I'm calling you out. I'm going to yell at you or lecture you. Sometimes strategy is the best way to go because it's that subtle. It lets everybody know in the room, James is not going to stand for this and we're going to need to adapt. So there's that kind of unspoken, I'm an ally, or I'm going to be doing the anti-racist work or whatever it is. You can do it in a way that is subtle, that doesn't have to be this huge blown fight, but lets the person who is being disrespected know that they are not alone in this. Because some of these things at work happen in an instant. You don't get this moment to pause and then go and say, hey, is that okay? Do you want me to? Sometimes you just need to make sure that they know they're not going to be surrounded by coworkers who aren't going to stand up for them. So there's strategy. So much of this, so much of being a human is strategy. And so it's figuring out what's the appropriate way. And you only learn that by learning from people who are different than you. Oh, snaps. I'm like, yes, yes, yes. 
Let's move to the next one. Is bias ever a positive thing? Can we use it in beneficial ways? I think what's difficult is bias is attached to judgment or bias is attached to I'm different, you're different, and I think I'm better than you. And I know that's boiling bias down to a very, very specific thing. There's a lot of privilege that goes into it. But in this instance, with this example, I feel like that's where my brain's going with like bias. And I think that there is the benefit of observing that we're all different. There is beauty. I am not one. I cringe at when people say I don't see color. We all have different colors. <laughs> like, like, don't act like that doesn't exist. So I think that if we were to look at it, if I'm looking at it from that perspective of does bias, the ability to see how we're different, that in a sense could be like, it's good, but biased from the sense of we're different and I'm comfortable with how I am, I don't see bias ever being a good thing. But the ability to acknowledge how we're different and we have different traits that are beneficial, we have different things in our cultures that are beautiful that we bring together. I do think it's important for us to see the differences. I think it is important for us to acknowledge how certain people have different strengths from the culture that they have, or people have different talents or skills. I, I do think it's important for us to acknowledge that. Biased, I think the only benefit that can come from the topic is that we just dive in deeper to doing the research to see more of a person. That's the only benefit that I can think of that comes from biased in the way that, that we're talking about it in this conversation. I don't know. What do you think? It's such a brave question and a beautiful one. And I agree with you that it is beautiful to recognize the inherent differences in human experience, culture, identity, right? And the beauty that we all bring because of that. One of the things that I will say is that I think because bias often comes with actions attached to it, like it's not always just beliefs, there's often the reinforcement of systemic inequities as a result of bias. I think that the behaviors around bias are, I don't want to say always, because that would probably be it, but there's probably a case where it's not true. But I right. think there's the, yeah, the though. vast majority of bias that is attached to behaviors carries with it real negative consequences in people's lives. That said, to the point that you made earlier, James, about the importance of humility, I have seen the dismantling of bias and the recognition of bias in people spur them to be better humans. And that I think is positive. So I don't know. I, I believe that often the bias itself and, and the structures that support it are really detrimental. However, it can be an entry for people into embracing the humanity of others. And in that way, I think it can be beautiful, but Hopefully, it doesn't take pain to get to that point. That's a really good answer. I, I think that that is, it's that chicken or the egg thing, right? Of would we have that change? Obviously, we'd love to live in the world where everybody got along and everything was great and all of that, but we don't. And so sometimes you're right in that sense, realizing you've been biased, realizing something can then catapult you into sometimes activism or accountability. I do think that it's that 
sometimes it can be a rubber band for something greater. But like you said, you hope that there wasn't real damage done from that bias beforehand. Right. Yeah. And and I think where I've seen it be a force for, I don't, I don't know, a catalyst to positive change, let's say, is when people can look at the fact that they have a particular bias against a particular individual or group of individuals, and they do the work to see that person's humanity, and then they doubt a lot of other beliefs and biases as a result of that and can like extrapolate and do other work as opposed to, I think sometimes people get very narrow in their focus. Like, well, once I become anti-racist, then I'm done, right? Or once I embrace my trans child, then I'm- I never Everything's will, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have a religious bias or a ableism or whatever it is. And so I, I think bias, because of what it does to people, it's so dehumanizing and so- painful. And I, I wish that we didn't, I wish that the structures that existed to, to support it weren't there because then maybe it wouldn't be as damaging, but because of the ways that culture reinforces it and it, I mean, it devastates people's lives. I I think it's overwhelmingly not a good thing, but good things have come from it. I think it can be something. I really liked the word. It can be a catalyst but a lot of things can be a catalyst and that doesn't mean that it has good traits. It, it's a very complicated question in a good way. I think it's a question that needs to be asked, but yeah, I like that conversation. Thanks for asking me too. Like, I love that we got to talk about that and thank you to the caller. So we'll play the final question. Hey y'all. Thank you for doing this. I'm curious, do anti-bias trainings ever perpetuate more bias? Thanks. Yes. I think that in many different instances, one, if you have somebody who's maybe not very good at DEI and comes from shame, now you just got the brain to double down on defensive. So that's not good. And I have sat through those trainings and been like, I have coworkers who don't do crucial conversations and they don't do critical thinking. And I think this just empowered them to be even worse. So yes, I have seen sadly, the training not go um, how you hope it to go. If it's done in a stereotypical way that just empowers the stereotype of a person, it can be a little problematic. I can only speak and will only speak in this example from one queer person to other queer people. I have seen DEI done or conversated in a way that's angry, that kind of perpetuates the angry queer person. I have even felt attacked (laughs) and I'm the queer person in the room. And I'm like, ah, (laughs) I felt uncomfortable with that. And I do think that it perpetuates that bias or a stereotype that doesn't invalidate where the person's coming from who's talking. They're talking defensive or angry or hurt from a very real place. And I think it's just like the last question. People are complex. It's a complex topic. But do I think that it helped shift maybe the culture of the company they were at? No, I don't possibly think that it shifted it the way they wanted it to. But at the same time, you could hear my kid crying, humans are humans, and we're going to keep humaning. And so sometimes trainings don't go the way that everybody would like them to go. And that happens. But from the most part, 
from the brilliant DEI people that I have gotten to work with who come in and they know how to teach well and they know how to speak well and they, they are good at their jobs. They are brilliant for this degree of shifting a culture. And I do hope that I bring that same environment and that same essence to when I'm, I'm speaking of we're humans, this is uncomfortable, but by the end, you're going to feel empowered. And I have been in enough DEI to have hope for the industry, to have hope for the culture of our community and our cultures to change. But yeah, just like any other industry, just like any other training or profession, there are certain times where it can be negative when you want it to be a positive. But I don't think that that's most of them. I do think that what does happen is companies do DEI training, not with a professional but with HR or whatever. And that is problematic. And that is just checking off a box. And it also is often done at the free emotional labor of employees. And it is why I am very passionate about people paying for this work from independent DEI trainers, because I think it's important that employees don't have to do free emotional labor. I think that HR is not built for this the way that they think that they are. And you do need to have somebody who's coming in who is not emotionally invested in the employees, who is not knowing the drama between Rebecca and John. They're just coming in to build empathy, to build some bridges, and can do it in a way that they've been trained. And separately, but just as importantly, they've been trained to cope. They know how to cope with a conversation beforehand and how to cope after the presentation employees don't know how to do that. And so they're going to do these conversations. They're exhausted. They're bitter maybe at their peers. They're bitter at their employees. They're bitter at HR or HR is bitter at the employees. It's tense or they're reading off of a handbook and we all know how dull that sounds. And then it's just asking for drama and problems. So then in that situation, it can be just awful. Well, thank you so much for the question. Thank you so much for the answer. And James, speaking of outside consultants who are really good at what they do, how do people connect with you, whether they want to hire you to come in and do some competency training or education, or I know you're doing more speaking these days and keynote addresses and fireside chats. So how do people link up with you to learn more about what you do and how to bring you into their organization? Yeah, so they can... Get in touch with me. The transcoach is my brand. So transcoach.com, transcoach at gmail.com, the transcoach on Instagram. And you can email me, get on my website, find me on Instagram. And I talk a lot about this type of stuff. But the transcoach, I like to say, is more the transition coach, not just trans as in transgender. So I'm here to help people through any type of transition that they're going through, transitioning the culture, transitioning to becoming a parent. It's a whole whole conversation. So anything that you want to talk about, go to the trans coach. And we will put links to that in the show notes. And I just so appreciate you. Thank you so much, James, for your time, your generosity, your expertise. And thank you to everyone who is listening. I learned so much from this conversation. Well, thank you. It is always a pleasure. And I appreciate you bringing me back on. Can we move forward differently? To foster greater equity Even if we don't always understand Fairness we can and should demand Let's embrace one another Single colleagues, working mothers People of all points of view 
Can we see each other through? So I loved talking to James, both in our original interview and then in this Q&A part two. I love the opportunity to go deep with one person. And I just found him so heart-centered and emotionally generous. So how has either the main episode or listening to my discussion with James changed your understanding of bias or inspired you to take action towards the issue in some way? I think one thing I really enjoyed from James's Q&A harps on what we spoke about a little earlier when Azaria mentioned taking time to think. And I said, check yourself before you wreck yourself. James really drilled home about the art of critical thinking. And I thought that was so, so important in that process of, again, not bringing your incorrect or negative biases into reality. The other thing that I thought was super impactful and eye-opening was the element of social media that James discussed. And how that's had an impact on people's biases. So yeah, I thought that the the talk about social media was really important. I see on a regular basis how that changes people's opinions, how folks will take that as fact and confirm incorrect biases that they might have against an individual. So I think that was was a really interesting dive into that space. So I encourage folks to, to listen to that and, and learn from that part. And if I were to shout out one other thing from the episode, actually from the main episode that I thought was really great was listening to Bev Weinberg because she really brought home the element that I think often sometimes gets overlooked as folks with disabilities and the biases that employers may have against folks of that space. She gave an example of having a scenario where it didn't work out well. And now the business is like, well, we tried it, so it didn't work, so we're good. And that was their bias, assuming that all people with disabilities are the same, which is can be further from the truth. So I did love some of the examples that were shown and, and really opening eyes about the other elements that can really be affected or the other people that can be affected through biases. What about you, Darylise? I would say that the biggest thing that made an impact on me was just like the willingness to be curious and how important it is for people to conceive of themselves as lifelong learners. Because I'll be honest, I have biases. I mean, I think every human being does and will continue to have them until the day that we die, you know? But what I found is that just over the course of my professional experience interviewing, I don't know, somewhere close to 400 people now, and then just interacting with people professionally, being receptive to their stories and experiences, a lot of the biases that I have have changed and shifted over time. And so I would say that that's the thing that really stands out to me is how people learn from one-on-one individual interactions or group interactions in a way that maybe, Zach, you mentioned social media, but in my experience, statistics or information don't make as big of an impact on people as hearing the stories, seeing other people's lives, seeing the photographs, getting a sense of the lived experiences of those who we might previously have judged. So yeah, I would say that that's something that always stands out to me when I talk about bias and that I'm hoping people will maybe do a little bit differently. Listeners might do a little bit differently and I myself might do a little bit differently after this episode is just being receptive and going into conversations with people I might judge with a bit more of an open mind. So what about the two of you? What might you hope that listeners will do differently? I would hope from this episode and the Q&A episode, listeners 
take away the idea that this is a conversation with themselves as individuals first before it's a conversation with anyone else. And by that, I mean doing work around bias is very much about you having some tough internal dialogues. And really, because no one, no matter who you bring into that conversation, no one is going to understand what's going on inside of you better than you. And so that first step is really like asking yourself the hard questions, really sorting out your thoughts. I like that James talked about journaling. I'm a huge advocate of journaling. I do it myself. But just doing something to really even understand the thoughts that you have around certain people and groups of people. Because I think that we can't begin to do the real work until we understand ourselves and where that stems from and what we truly think and how that can be just so from left field and maybe that was a thought that just stuck with us from something that someone else taught us down the line, but still it stuck with us all these years. And now we treat people differently because of that, right? So like really doing the work. And then I think once you start grasping what's going on in your own mind, you can start having like healing conversations with people who you might have offended or asking people questions to learn more. But I think before you bring others into your your own personal bias work, you need to bring yourself in. And that sounds way easier said than done because the reality is, is that I think a lot of us struggle to really sit with ourselves in moments where we have to address the fact that we think things that we don't believe our character to be possible of thinking, right? I want to think that I'm a great person. So when this thought comes up that doesn't align with how I view myself, I just push it deeper. But that's how we continue to perpetuate biases instead of like really addressing them. So I just want people to realize that it's okay, as Leora and so many people said, it's okay to have those natural thoughts, but we really need to start with ourselves in terms of how we think of them and how we address them. And then, yeah, start bringing in people around you who will support you, but also hold you accountable through that journey. Great point. Great point. I will deliver another quote that I grew up hearing time and time again from my parents. And it is, don't assume because you make an ass out of you and me. And I think that relates to this topic at a very high level. I think if I wanted listeners to take something from it, it is that, again, understanding that biases are okay but also having that ability to not spew whatever bias you may have or opinion you may have out to others, not assume that you are correct and be humble enough to know that you might not be. And if someone does correct you to take that feedback and and learn from it and grow from it, because it it is impactful both on how you look, but also the psyche and the, the, the mental well-being and other factors of the people who you might be perpetuating those assumptions onto. So I think that would be my main thing I would love listeners to take away is stop, think, and move forward appropriately versus just saying whatever comes into your mind. That's not the best way to move through life, in my opinion. And Zach, you referenced bias being okay. And it is. I know that it is and that it can't be eradicated. And there's part of me that's like, yeah, that makes total sense. But there's another part of me that really just wishes that we could just do away with bias altogether. And I'm just so curious, like, how did both of you reconcile the fact that it is never going away? It's never going to be eradicated. I don't know. I get frustrated by that, even within myself. And I'm just curious how the two of you feel about it. I don't think I feel bad about it. So I feel like there's other things that branch off of biases that give me that negative feeling. If you could tell me we could have biases and not have racism, I'm all the way with biases. Like, all right, cool. Maybe it becomes more of something that becomes 
jovial. It can be joked about, like your your thoughts. But it's it's the hate that sometimes is bred from the biases that has that negative feeling and that that impact that really bothers me. So I, I don't feel any sort of of way about it. I guess I would say I think I just want to be cognizant of it, and of course know that when I'm dealing with folks who either have unconscious bias that they're open to hearing how to be better and folks that are just so biased that it's basically they're racist or prejudice or hating towards some sort of group that I notice it and that those can be folks that I stay away from. I actually don't feel negative about it because at the end of the day, like when I first started doing DEI work, I had a lot of conversations. I majored in psychology. So you think a lot about like biology and whatnot. And the same parts of our brains that engage in biases, they're the same parts that have contributed to our survival as a species. We have to biologically put things in boxes for our brain to make sense of them. That's how we categorize things. That's how we know what to touch versus not to touch, what's safe, what's dangerous. Like that is how our brain computes reality. And so I understand from a biological stance that it's necessary for our brain to really compartmentalize things like that and really try to understand the world the best that we can. I understand that that's necessary. So again, I just, I think there's no use in trying to fight it or eradicate it because our brain works in ways, in similar ways that are good for us, right? It's what's helped us live as long as we have. But I think just over time as We've been exposed on such larger scales to so many differences. And that's not to say that the differences we're seeing and having a lot of hot topic conversations about, case in point, the LGBTQIA plus communities, that they just somehow popped up in history. No, they've been there since forever, right? But like back to the social media point, we're now seeing stuff in our little town in wherever we live that we would have never seen without social media, right? So we're being exposed. It's the age of information. We're being exposed to so much. And so I think that where our biases become more problematic is when we're just really bombarded with a lot of new information, a lot of uncomfortable realities that we're not familiar with as individuals. And so that's when it starts to, I think, really become a challenge. But that's an okay challenge because it also means that we're being exposed to more than just our bubble. So I, I'm kind of like not against biases. I'm just against how people act on them. And there's a positive way to have the discourse around, this is what I feel. I know it's not right and I don't want to act on it. So what do I need to do? Because I think in doing the work around your personal biases, you're doing work that's ultimately going to lead to you being a better person all around. And without those biases being present, we wouldn't have opportunity to better ourselves in those ways. So I'm like for it, but it needs to be handled with care and sensitivity and not ignorance. And it's such an important point that you make about how our brains want to categorize and put things in boxes. And I know we wrap up each episode of these Q&As by talking about privilege and intersectionality and inequity and identity. And it's really interesting with bias, right? Because on the one hand, that stems from wanting to put people in boxes, but then you layer intersectionality on top of that. And it's like, but what do people do when they're in multiple, multiple boxes or when there's overlap or when there's like a interplay between the different categories and the different biases. So I'm just wondering if Azaria, you can speak for a moment on how intersectionality, maybe how it complicates or how it intensifies biases. 
I think that going back to that biological piece, I think humans want things to be as simple as possible. And so I think oftentimes when you see racism and outright bigotry, it's oftentimes because somebody else's uniqueness in their identity has perplexed an individual so much that they almost get frustrated and angry because it challenges so much of what their mind has simplified for them to receive and understand what the world is. And now you're being challenged. So when you start to add different layers of people's identities, I think for people who are not ready to do that self-work, it becomes frustrating because they might have already concluded, here's this simple idea of what the world is. That is it. That makes my life easy. I don't have to challenge myself any further. And cool, conversation done. And then here you have this person who is queer, disabled, person of color. And you're like, dang it. That's simplifying it because certainly a lot people become very harmful when they get to that mind state at times. But I think that intersectionality is an important conversation in, in all that we talk about because whoever is receiving that person's identity can either choose to continue to try to force your personal views on them and simplify them so that you can be comfortable or you can put yourself in a space to say, it's okay that I'm uncomfortable, but uncomfortable is an opportunity to learn. You can't separate intersectionality from the conversation of bias, nor can you separate it from any other conversation that we have for that very reason. I love that. You know, AC Folks, and I can't remember what episode it was in, but in his interview, he had shared that discomfort is not trauma, right? Mm, <laughs> like that that right. it is okay to mm-hmm. be uncomfortable and that it is on the part of the observer or the outsider to be willing, right, to accept that discomfort and not to kind of put it back on the person whose identity is already being marginalized or against whom we hold the bias. It's not their fault that I'm uncomfortable. It's my fault that I'm uncomfortable. And what do I need to do in order to shift myself, not try to change someone else? So yeah, I think we could talk about this topic for several more hours. We've talked about it, as Azaria said, throughout the various episodes of this podcast. And we would love to hear your thoughts if you're listening to this and your questions. So please write us or call in. And FYI, for those who do write and or call in, we are going to be giving out a free copy of the book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity for every Q&A episode. So Azaria, do you care to do the honors and announce the winner for this episode? Certainly. The winner of this episode is Andrea, who called in a previous episode with a question. Thank you so much to everyone who subscribed to the newsletter and calls and writes us with questions. And make sure you're following us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. We'll be answering some of your questions there, too. And of course, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for listening in more than 50 plus countries around the world. And if you want to contact today's expert, James Barnes, the trans coach, go to thetranscoach.com or find him on IG, also known as Instagram, as the trans coach. And we'll put that info in the show notes as well. And while you're checking out our show notes, be sure to click the link for DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com to subscribe to our newsletter and learn about our DEI trainings, workshops, coaching, consulting, and our other DEI services. We love hearing from all of you. And the newsletter is really great. We're doing much more on social this season. So please connect with Sedwick and with us. Subscribe to the newsletter. Get involved. Get engaged. Get your employer engaged. Or if you are an employer, we hope that this will support you in creating a more inclusive workplace culture.
Every episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by Darylise Lyons. With the invaluable assistance of co-collaborator and marketing manager, Zach James, with Azaria Keys, assistant director of Sedwick, who is the co-producer and coordination consultant for the Demystifying Diversity podcast, Paul Kondo, our assistant producer and editor, Stuart Kreintz, our production and development assistant, and our content editor and creative collaborator, Sunny Taylor. The music you heard is Demystifying Diversity, an original composition, the lyrics of which were written by Darylise Lyons in collaboration with Ramon Beef Tink, who also created all the music and performed vocals and instrumentals. Thank you again to James Barnes and to you are listening to this and Zach and Azaria. Thanks again. This was really great. Please, if you're listening, join us next week where we'll be talking about moving beyond biases, the technological approach. It'll be great. And you don't have to have a tech background to get a lot out of that episode. So please be sure to tune in for that. And in the meantime, let's keep trying to make this a better, more inclusive world. 